0: Support for Fieldwork is provided by Manitou Fund.
1: Hey everyone, Zach Johnson here. We hope everyone's staying healthy during this coronavirus outbreak, and we wanted to let you know that we recorded this episode well before things started to go haywire. We hope you'll still find the information interesting and entertaining, even if you have a lot of stuff going on in your mind right now. Also, we're thinking about doing an episode sometime soon on how this pandemic may affect the egg world. If you have particular questions about that, please shoot us a note on Twitter at Fieldwork Talk, or on our voicemail at 651-228-4810.
0: Welcome back once again to the Fieldwork Podcast. I'm Zach Johnson. I'm Mitchell Hora. Thanks for joining us here today as we talk about sustainable agriculture from the voice of farmers to farmers. Today
1: we are speaking with Tara Vonderduesen, you may have seen her on social media where she goes by the name The New Mexico Milkmaid.
0: She's, like, super famous. She's Mega gonna famous. going show you up, Zach. Insta-famous. Insta-famous. Yeah. Wow, that is fancy. When Tar's not online, she's working as an environmental scientist and a dairy farmer in New Mexico, hence The New Mexico Milkmaid. Makes sense.
1: Yes. Uh, water scarcity is a pretty big issue down there in the Southwest. I think a lot of us know that. That's the reason I was really excited to talk to her. And I know uh, dairy farmers have been getting pretty creative To try to keep their businesses sustainable and deal with the water issues that they face, which a lot of the time is completely different than the issues we face
0: up here in the Midwest. Totally. And so it's really interesting for me as we talk with Tara here on that difference between the northern U.S. versus southwest U.S., but also Tara's view on the global view of sustainability, I think is really interesting and uh, excited to jump right in to our conversation here with her.
1: Tara, thanks for joining us on the Fieldwork podcast. Hi. Tell us about your farm.
2: Yeah, so we are um, a dairy farm family in eastern New Mexico. Um, we milk collectively all together about 10,000 cows between three barns. Uh, we're in business with my husband's entire family, which includes his parents and four out of five of his brothers. Uh, the last brother decided to veer in a different direction and become a lawyer. But that's always useful, too, I feel like, so, especially since he's doing ag law. Um, but yeah, we, we got a lot of us out here and, um, I also grew up on a dairy farm my entire life. So my family dairy farms as well.
1: So beyond being a part of, uh, the management of the farm where you manage an incredible amount of cows there, tell us about your work as an environmental scientist.
2: Yeah. So that's more my focus on the dairy. Uh, my husband is more focused on overall management and herd health. But for me, it's all about more the nutrient management, the manure management, and water conservation. So I actually work for a, an independent company that uh does all sorts of different things, but my area of focus is definitely dairy environmental work. So I have clients all throughout the Southwest, and I assist them with just different environmental projects on their dairy, uh, whether that be working with the state or federal regulators, working through their permitting, uh, working on their water rights, whatever it kind of may be in that area. um, That's kind of what I do.
0: So what's kind of an example of something that one of the projects that you've been involved with, like, just dig into that a little bit more for us here.
2: Yeah. So on a regular basis, it's about doing, you know, the reporting kind of to the state level. Like we submit quarterly reports. We, in in those reports, we are checking like meter readings for water use. We're soil sampling. We're sampling our groundwater. Uh, we're sampling our lagoons regularly. And then other like unique projects is a lot of times we'll have producers that apply for, you know, equip funding in order to um, update. Upgrade their system and update more sustainable management practices. And so, you know, then we can be looking at anything from um, conserving water use t- in the barn to building, um, you know, manure solid separators, uh, just having better um, manure solid management. Uh, and so, you know, lots of fun manure things. <laughs>
1: Is it strictly dairies that you work with?
2: Uh, it's not. Actually, dairy is only about 30% of what my company does. Uh, it's my main area. But then I also work for just, you know, crop farmers as well, especially when it comes to like water rights and, um, you know, their water use. We have to keep track of all of that, whether you're a dairy or just a farmer. Um, and so we'll help farmers with that as well.
0: Zach and I were talking on a about a, a different episode, and uh, maybe you can answer for us. Can you milk a sheep? <laughs>
2: I would imagine yes. I don't know really if that's what you would want to do. No one's ever do. really tried. You yeah.
0: don't consult with anybody who's milking sheep?
2: No, uh uh-uh. uh. Everyone <laughs> that I consult with milks dairy cows. I don't even have any oh, okay. I don't even have any goat farmers.
0: Well if there are any People milking sheep, call us up on our voicemail line. We want to talk to you. (laughs) We We want to talk. We will get you on the podcast.
2: Yeah, and you should also let me know. I want to hear more about that as well.
0: Okay, we'll we'll call you in. Okay, any sheep milkers out there that want to be on the podcast, call us up. Tara will jump back on with us. We're going to talk about your water utilization and producing great milking sheep.
2: Aren't there camels that people I have no idea where to go with this.
0: <laughs> Are there what?
2: Camels. Don't people milk camels somewhere? Camels, yeah, sure. I heard that's a thing.
0: That'd be really... Isn't that how they make powdered milk?
2: <laughs> I mean, we make powdered milk out of cow's milk, but I'm sure you can do anything with camel's milk, too. I'm just too. thinking
0: that cow, camels would be easier, wouldn't it be? Like Camel condensed? in the desert. Like, yeah. yeah, you would think. Yeah. Uh, OK, let's right get a
2: ton of people that milk lots of different things and let's all have a podcast about that. All right.
0: Let's get all of them. <laughs> all right. <laughs> OK, back to an actual question that I have. Yeah. With these the compliance kind of stuff that you're doing, are the farmers mandated to do that? Like it's state regulation or they're doing it because of the programs that they're involved with?
2: So, probably a combination of both. Um, the majority is they are required. New Mexico has some of the strictest groundwater regulations in the country, which often surprises people. But uh, so we have to sample, we have several monitoring wells that monitor groundwater around our dairies, um, upgradient water, downgradient water. We sample those four times a year. We sample our lagoons four times a year. We sample our soils to three feet once a year. And then we report on that. Uh, quarterly. And then, you know, nutrient management plans have to be updated. And then beyond that, then there's, uh, you know, additional projects, uh, especially if you know your lagoon system isn't working exactly how you want it, or if it's building up a solid, then that would be like something additional that you might want to look into and um, see what kind of, you know, assistance might be out there to uh, make those changes on your farm.
1: So the regulations for water in New Mexico, it sounds like are pretty strict. We're sitting up here, I'm from Minnesota, we're sitting in Minnesota, Uh, Mitchell's from Iowa. Both of our states have had a a big amount of water issues, water concerns.
0: But ours is all on like too much water, kind of leading into stuff, and like excess rainwater. Right. Right.
1: Yeah, we're sitting at the headwaters of the Mississippi, and so it's always an issue of how healthy is the water that's leaving the state. Explain why New Mexico... Is so strict when it comes to the water regulations.
2: You guys are pretty much the exact opposite of us in every way possible when it comes to water. So, water is our limiting resource in New Mexico. So, water conservation is huge, which is the exact opposite problem that you guys have. Um, None of my guys have like tile drains or anything like that. That is definitely, you know, more your guys' area. So, ours is definitely about finding like drought resistant crops, anything that can use less water. Um, We're permitted on exactly how much water we use in our milking parlors. So getting that number as low as possible per cow is really important. You have to stay under a permitted amount. And then um – as far as water quality, you guys obviously have more of a concern with surface water. Well, we are out in the desert, High Plains, and we don't There's have no any surf- surface water. <laughs> uh, yeah. Some parts of our state do. You know, the Rio Grande has some uh, surface water concerns. But out in eastern New Mexico, groundwater is our issue. And we're anywhere from 200 to 400 feet to groundwater. And so it's really keeping an eye on the water um that is traveling, you know, the nitrogen traveling down through the soil, and ultimately reaching that uh, water table.
0: Yeah, Zach, at your farm, what? It's like two to four feet to <laughs> yeah. groundwater, maybe less. D- no, we're we're pretty low actually. To no, if you dig a hole a couple foot deep, it's going to be full of water the next day. There's no way.
1: It depends on the current rains. You'd have to be in a wet spell. Probably not as deep as around you. Certainly not as deep as in New Mexico. Right? Yeah. No. Four hundred feet. feet You'd be would be an awful. For a long time. Yeah,
2: a long way to dig. Yeah, <laughs>
1: It's a long way. Especially with a shovel. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I wouldn't recommend it. That would not be very fun. (laughs) Not fun.
1: Tara, what are some of the things that you've done on your farm to reduce the water usage?
2: So I would say one of the things that we've really been focusing on this year is changing up our crops um, and trying to find more drought-resistant crops. We used to grow a lot more corn, and we're just not growing that anymore. We're growing a lot more like hay grazer. We're experimenting with some other crops. Like this year, we tried out a little bit of canola, which was kind of new for us, uh, trying out some oats. And so just making, uh, you know, changes there. We're planting a lot more variety than we used to. It used to be, you know, a two-crop kind of rotation a year, and now there's any anywhere from, you know, four or five different crops in, you know, a five-year period. And we double crop here in New Mexico, so we have a summer crop as well as a winter crop.
0: That's cool. I visited a farm for the podcast out in uh, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. like a pretty good-sized dairy farm out there, and we were talking a lot about the water usage and some of the things that they're doing. we got to have you clear up something for us. Okay. Uh, They utilize this thing that they call a flume. First of all, have you ever heard of a flume before?
2: Uh, no, I haven't. That sounds like okay. some Midwest That's, talk. Yes,
0: made up word, <laughs> made up Wisconsin word. Right now, okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's a floor these, drain. Yeah, it's basically it's just a floor drain. So okay. like, they're scraping all of the manure and stuff into this floor drain, and then the water. I think it was the water coming off of like the top of the lagoon, or like halfway's cleaned off water and stuff that they then pressurize and, like, rush the water back through the floor drain. Uh-huh. And it cleans out all of that manure that they scraped into there. And then they've got, like, a sediment kind of basin where the sand and the, the heavier particles filter out when that water slows down. Then the water, you know, and the rest of the manure, the manure goes to the lagoon. And then all the sand and everything, they're able to scrape back up, get it dried, and kind of reuse it. Yes. How does you guys' stuff work? Do you have... Just a regular floor drain since, so honestly, we- flume is.
2: Clearly a made-up Wisconsin word,
0: now confirmed.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a made-up word. Uh, No, it's probably (laughs) a very real word to them, but not out here. Uh, We have what we call a flush system, um, which I think is similar. But Mm. one thing that's the biggest difference between, you know, probably the dairy you visited and out here in eastern New Mexico is we are open lot dairy. So our cows are outdoors year-round because we have an abundance of sunshine and warm weather for the most part and pretty mild climate overall. So our cows are outdoors so We don't have as much like um, covered space or like area of scraping for manure. But it is still similar. So most dairies across the United States can use one gallon of water up to five times, like recycle it. So for us, we'll use a gallon of water to cool our milk because milk is typically at like over 100 degrees when it comes out of the cow. For us, groundwater is 55 degrees, so it can kind of take the edge off before it goes through the chiller. And then we'll use that same water to wash down equipment in the front of the barn then we can use that water to flush out the back of the barn, which sounds kind of similar to what, those, what you saw there. And then yeah. that same water will go, go to the lagoon but then can be recycled to flush like our alleyways, so right behind where the cows eat collects a lot of manure. And so we can flush that. And then again, just like you mentioned, we want to separate out as much of the solids as possible. So oftentimes, it'll go through a mechanical separator, or it'll go through um, settling ponds or weeping walls. There's tons of different – every dairy's management system is different for their manure. Um, But ultimately, we'll end up in the lagoon. And then we use that lagoon water uh, to – apply out onto our crops, especially in New Mexico, where our water is limited, that water can be like extremely valuable for making it like through the end of a hot summer.
1: And so are you, you're using that water at the end for irrigation purposes? Yes,
2: irrigation out onto our crops. And that's really where the manure management plans like come into play is keeping track of exactly how much nitrogen we're sending out onto our fields um, you know, and keeping track of all of that records. And that's probably a big sure, difference between the Midwest. because you have
0: the, the and... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because ours, like our manure management plans are, you know, farmers in the Midwest are super regulated as well on manure management plans. But all of that manure is being pumped out and typically injected into the soil over the fall and early spring, where yours, like, yeah, you're spreading some of it, you know, kind of how we are as well, but you also just have the liquid coming off of the top of the lagoon that's also got a lot of nutrients in it but that's being utilized throughout the growing season
2: yeah we're center pivot irrigation um primarily a couple flood fields but it's pretty rare everything's almost being converted now to center pivot. And we can apply year round because we don't have frozen ground. And so um, we're just we have a lot more options when it comes to that. And then we also are regulated more heavily on nitrogen, where you guys, I think, are typically more regulated on phosphorus. So it's another regional difference. Um, You know, when you talk about sustainability, or any kind of nutrient management, it really gets specific to that region and area, even within a state can be a huge difference of what your resource concerns are. Um, And so nitrogen is ours.
1: What are some of the biggest opportunities that you see for sustainability in dairy farming?
2: I think we have some... Really cool up-and-coming technologies and different things. Dairy I think has been kind of on the cutting edge. I think we got heat from um, consumers and activist groups really early on about sustainability, and so it's been at the forefront of our minds. We have the Dairy Sustainability Alliance um, that meets twice a year, and we really talk through you know, new innovations and technology. Um, A lot of dairies, you know, are installing the methane digesters. That's already extremely popular. Um, New Mexico is a little late to the game on that because we are open lot. We lose a lot of the value of our manure really quickly to the sun because it dries it out quickly. But I think the technology there is just getting started and it's going to continue to get better and better. Um, I think, as you guys know, with all ag things, you know, people are always surprised at how much technology is out there and how much we're doing and how much we're innovating. And so I think there's still a lot of room for improvement. We've set some pretty big goals. We have a goal coming up for the end of 2020 to reduce our emissions by 25% over the last 10 years. And I think last time I saw, uh, we had reduced it by 19% from the 2017 data. So that's a big step in the right direction and we'll have more goals set for 2050. Um, and when you set those kind of goals as an industry-wide thing, it really pushes people to get more creative and really um, pushes the innovation technology um, you know, envelope.
0: So as you're documenting and, and showing all this kind of stuff, we've got to switch to uh, your, I don't know if it's an alter ego, but your, uh, your online <laughs> profile, I'm sitting across from the Minnesota millennial farmer, you are the New Mexico milkmaid. Tell us about how all that came about and uh, what has that journey been like? And obviously now you're just killing it online and congrats for all the success there too.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, I've been online for a few years. I think Instagram, I really started sharing about two years ago and then my blog was before that. And when I started sharing, I just didn't really feel like anyone was telling like, what I saw from the dairy industry. I mean, a lot of people shared about animal health and cow health, but I didn't see a lot being shared about the manure management and water conservation. And at first, I almost didn't even share because I just didn't think anyone would really be interested. I I don't work with the cows at all directly. That's just not my job. And so it was kind of like I was going to be a dairy farmer sharing about dairy farming with no cows. And so I was like, I don't know if people really care about that. But I ultimately kind of decided to just go for it. And I'm so glad I did, because I think the sustainability buzzword is just getting bigger and bigger. And um, people have more and more questions. We're seeing, you know, different reports and tons of different misinformation online about dairy sustainability and what the impact of dairy and cattle and animal agriculture is on the environment. And so I love being able to share with people some of the facts and the truths and and just sharing with them our day-to-day lives of like how we're regulated and what we have to keep track of. And um, I think a lot of people... think that dairies aren't regulated when it comes to environmental practices. And so it's kind of fun to be able to set the record straight there and show them exactly what we're doing and how we're doing it.
1: Yeah, you're definitely right there. I think a lot of people are genuinely really surprised when they learn about the regulations and the hoops we have to jump through. And and not just that, but the technology that we're already using, you know, to be the best that we can, because we're like any other industry. We're always moving forward. There's a ton of technology coming on. And I think people are just honestly shocked when they see some of the stuff that we're using within agriculture. So I commend you for that. I mean, Thank obviously, you. that's important. You know, I'm active online, but I, I can't advocate for the dairy industry. No. I mean, I, I we need people from every space within yeah. agriculture to talk about what's really going 100%. on. I can yeah. completely Because if I agree. want to learn about dairy farming, I want to listen to a dairy farmer talk yeah. about it. Yep. Right? Uh,
2: yeah, and I think people so, have this misconception that like it's like saturated with those of us from agriculture, like sharing online. And it's like, we're only 2% of the population. We can't possibly be saturating the online conversation. Like everyone has their unique story to tell. And I even learned so much from crop farmers like you that I follow or, you know, any kind of industry, even within ag, we don't always know about other types of ag. I've learned a ton from some of the beef people I've followed. Like it's important for all of us to be sharing and learning from each other so that when we see like misinformation, we have like the resources available to help all of each other out. I really believe that as ag, we're all in this together, whether that be crop farmers or animal ag, like we need to have a common voice of sharing our message.
1: Absolutely. Do you have any specific guidelines or tips or any specific ways that you think about approaching that when you talk to the public about sustainability?
2: You know, I think I... It's easy to get, like, kind of lost in the weeds of things, um, especially when you're talking about something complicated, as with anything in ag, whether that's dairy sustainability or other things. And so I think I always try to just relate it to things that they understand. Um, and make. I think that one of the important things for farmers to do is make connection with connections with their followers beyond just farming. Like for me, that's probably sharing the most about like my daughters and being a mom and connecting with them there and being like explaining that I have the same concerns as every other mom who's out there buying groceries. Like, is this healthy? Is it good for the planet? Is it, you know, what went into making this? And so, Connecting with consumers there and then being able to explain things in a way that they understand. I think for dairy farming, a lot of people still think of a a dairy barn as it was in like the 1945s, you know, like a red barn um, milking a few cows. And so I always talk about how to – for us to catch them up to 2020 is quite a leap sometimes. And so kind of taking them through the process uh, of why we're doing things, how we're doing things, and why it matters. You know, I think those are important steps that we have to take to get them to get consumers to understand what we're doing.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree with you there. I think one of the one of the big things that I always try to remember is that it, you know, we don't always have to talk to consumers about farming. It doesn't always yeah. have to be about farming, but like you mentioned, <laughs> you're a mom and you want to show people that you have the same concerns about that food as everybody else. I mean, you know, I want clean water as well. I want healthy soil as well. I want safe food too. Right. So, uh, I mean, we're all human. We're all in this together.
2: I agree.
0: So uh, I wanted to ask on, you know, as we're adopting more of this stuff, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. And on the Fieldwork podcast, we want to talk about there's some challenges to this as well. What do you think some of those major challenges are that farmers have to overcome as we are trying to do things more sustainable?
2: yeah so i mean i think anytime you implement something new there's always the fear of uh is this going to be sustainable long term like the word sustainable can mean so many different things to people but to me it has to be economically feasible it has to have a lifespan that's going to make it worth it um as well as the economic impacts of it and so i know like from a a nutrient management lagoon management standpoint Uh, Back in the 90s, like our state came out with a bunch of stuff. This was what they wanted farmers to do, like a list of upgrades they needed to make. And these upgrades cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And 10 years later, maybe not even that long, sometimes five years when their new permit would come out, it would be like, oh, wait, we actually learned from our mistakes there, and now we need you to do this, this, and this. And, you know, again, farmers, uh, dairy farmers would invest hundreds of thousands of dollars updating their systems, changing everything to meet the new regulations, meet their new permits for things to change again in five years. And so I think that any time that a farmer adopts a new practice, really looking at how it's going to play out long term. And I think the same things, you know, with the methane digesters is, okay, well, right now there's a lot of tax breaks, there's a lot of incentives. For renewable um, energies, um, but what happens ten years from now when those tax breaks aren't there? What happens twenty years from now when this equipment starts breaking down? You know, who helps you repair that? Who helps replace it? How much is it going to cost? How outdated is this technology going to be in twenty years? And so, I think those are the biggest challenges. Like I worry about whenever I'm talking with my clients about installing something new is. Okay, but what are the long-term ramifications of this, and is it still going to be considered, quote-unquote, sustainable when we're looking at it in 10, 20 years?
1: Do you have any specific stories about that happening on your farm where you made an update or a change that, you know, a few years later, all of a sudden the idea was to do something different?
2: Yeah, I have one of um, my clients actually that I worked with really closely on this uh, back in the 90s was told to install – a manure-lined lagoon, and he did it through NRCS. He did it to NRCS Specs, which if you've ever worked with NRCS, there is a lot of hoops to jump through to get funding for that and get their approval and their sign-off. And he had letters from the state saying, yep, this we agree. This is what we want you to do. And he did all of that work, tons of dirt work, tons of installing. And when his five-year permit came up, they were like, actually, we want uh, clay-lined lagoons. So he had to update everything. And it wasn't 10 years later that they were saying, we want synthetically-lined. Lagoons, and he had all the paperwork laid out of them approving each of these steps, and ultimately their response was well you know technology's gotten better we've we've learned from this and this is now what we want you to do to get to get your permit and you know you're kind of against a, between a rock and a hard place that you need to get your permit approved um, so that you can stay operational and so you know that was a, a really big struggle for that producer and he was like I've done everything right every step of the way for me to just have my state officials come back and say N- not enough this time you know and um that it's just very costly when you start looking That's at super that refreshing. stuff yeah, because
0: yeah, basically they're just mandated to do it or are there cost share programs available like through the state to do that or not? So
2: sometimes there's cost share programs like EQIP funding. One of the issues that we, I've ran into in New Mexico is if it's required in your permit, it's no longer considered an environmental like incentive program like EQIP because it's actually required. And so if it's written in your permit, then you, there's not cost sharing options available. Um, and so that can get really tricky. Uh, over the last 10 years, though, or so, like pretty much my entire like adult life after college college, we have been like working through rewriting our state regs as far as dairy uh, requirements go. And I think we've settled in a little bit better place over the last few years. And um, I hope we kind of stay this course for a while and hope we don't, you know, end up changing the rule. But, you know, there's a lot of politics at play when administrations change over different rules get written things get updated um and so that's kind of that's always the fear there is how how that politics will come into play too with this rulemaking.
1: are you saying that sometimes government can be inefficiently managed no way
0: i don't believe it
2: never happens ever
1: (laughs) that was me doing a mind-blowing we we need your uh that was the best way i could get that across (laughs) on the podcast Well, before we go any further, I think it's time to take a quick break.
0: For sure. All right, everyone, stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to the Fieldwork Podcast.
0: I'm Zach Johnson. I'm Mitchell Hora. We're continuing our conversation with dairy farmer and environmental scientist Tara Vander I'm
1: going to shift gears a little bit on you here, Tara. Okay. Um, You got to go to the UN's... Food and Ag Organization, or the FAO meeting in Rome...
2: Yes. Tell Very me about
1: fancy.
2: that. Yeah, it was really Let's cool. Let's about that. <laughs> I don't think I was cool enough to go because it, it was really neat and awesome. To, it was such an awesome opportunity. You know, when you start sharing online, you don't have any idea where it'll go or what will happen. And when something like that happens or comes from it, it feels pretty cool to be like a small town kid that gets to like go talk at the UN about what's happening on your family farm. Um, but I think that's like the, a magical world of social media and just being online and being willing to like – tell about your farm as, you know, cool opportunities happen. Um, but with that, it was really neat. It was um, the World Committee on Food Security. So it was really talking about creating a world system, like a safe, secure food system, looking at um, hunger in rural communities and in across the globe in, you know, cities too. But one of the things that was most shocking to me from attending that is that some of the largest portions of the population are affected by food security tends to be farmers, um, especially between harvests, because they've sold everything they had, to, like, that they produced in order to have money to pay bills, and so then they ultimately don't have enough food to feed their own families between harvest. And I, that, for me, just, like, was unbelievably eye-opening um, on the fact that the people producing our food in, you know, different countries are the ones the most impacted by food insecurity.
0: What did you think, like, the biggest takeaway was for the actual, you know, UN people as you were telling your story? What was, like, their big aha moment?
2: I think the UN tends, uh, and this is speaking super broadly, but I think that they often are not listening to farmers and not getting feedback from farmers. Um, And I think that they then are creating like regulations and rules that are going to impact so many people and so many farmers, and they don't actually have the basic understanding of how things are going to work. And I mean, that's, I think, with any government organization, but especially on the UN on such a large scale, that farming is so specific to each region that how can you make such a broad statement, you know? And then I also think there's this idea, and this was something I talked with a lot of um farmers from African countries, that they, a lot of times the UN wants them to stay like true to their roots, true to their heritage and their culture. And a lot of farmers feel like they're being held back from using new technologies and innovation that we get to use like here in the United States or in uh, the European Union, because there's this idea that they should be sticking to their traditional like roots of farming. And I think that's like extremely backwards. Like I think that they should be given every opportunity and every technology that farmers in developed countries receive. Um, and so I think that that's something that we have to overcome. And with the UN, there's this idea that the big farming is bad farming, and um, and th- that again is a common misconception. And so I think changing the minds of uh, the UN ambassadors and uh, you know just the different people that attend that meeting is going to be an extremely Large undertaking, but um, the private sector—that's who I attended with. It was from all different walks of agriculture, and when they started the private sector, I think they had about forty-five people. And now, several years in, we had the largest turnout of over two hundred and fifty people—farmers, industry, allied industry. They were all there to help, you know, better share our message and our story.
1: You mentioned about uh, you know some of the African farmers talking about how they feel like they're being held back. I've said that for years, that agriculture is in such a bizarre place where essentially the consumers are asking us to to step back back in time, get rid of some of the latest and greatest technology and do things the way that we used to, Mm -hmm. because they have this romanticized vision of what agriculture is supposed to be, right? Like
0: famine. Totally.
1: Would you ever ask ask the airline industry or the (laughs) tech industry to go backwards 50 years in time? It's just, it's a strange, I don't understand it.
2: I just spoke on that exact topic a while back. And the way I put it to people was that, yeah, there's this romanticized idea of the old way of farming, the old red barn, this wooden stool, the you know, the farmer and overalls. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things, but that is, I had a picture of my grandfather who looked exactly like that in an exact barn like that. And it was from 1945. And it's like, why on earth would we still be farming like that? And There's this idea, I think, that that was just like the good old days and that things were so great. And I like to remind people about the Dust Bowl like those farming practices got us into the Dust Bowl. And that thanks to technology and innovation, we have learned from the farmers that have come before us. We've taken, you know, their mistakes and learned on them and grown from them. And we're in a better place now. I mean, for dairy, cow care has never been better. I have a vet that comes and checks my cows once a week. I have a nutritionist that plans all of their diets, depending on what stage of life they're in. I mean, my cow's go to a doctor and see a nutritionist more than any child in America. I'd almost bet like on average. Um, and I, I don't think people, they, they still are so skeptical of this whole idea of modern farming.
0: I love the, like the whole mantra of like a factory farm. And I would say, I would love <laughs> to see a factory farm. I think it'd be so cool. Like if that was a real thing, I would love to go see one. Well, and I know
1: I'm- on our big corporate evil industrial factory <laughs> yeah. farm, Like, I live there. It's my dad and myself. Yeah, yeah. Right? My kids ride their bicycles around there. Well, you're super evil, though, Zach. We are evil. (laughs) I mean, that part is true.
2: Same for me. I'm 200 steps to my milking barn, and somehow I'm, like, would be considered a factory farm. And I'm also, like, what was so bad about factories? Weren't they, like, at some point in time, great places to work, efficient, like, produced great cars? Like, I'm, like, when did – I don't know. The whole – that whole factory farming thing, I'm, like, there's so many – issues the whole deal about me. like
0: the american consumer spending like the lowest percentage of their dollar yeah. on food of like anywhere in the world like it's a pretty awesome deal and it's, it's because a pretty good gig. Yep. We're, um, as american farmers we're the best in the world at producing the things that we do effectively efficiently yeah and uh in a manner that keeps it Available and cheap for right. everybody.
1: Right. So, before I, I don't want to get too wound up on this, oh, yeah. I'm we're getting, getting pretty <laughs> riled I know, up. we're
2: getting riled up. Sorry.
1: I've got a <laughs> very good. important we like question. To get riled up. <laughs> I, I've been waiting on this question for a few minutes. It's very important. Tara, when you were over in Rome, mm-hmm. Yes. did you have to fight the urge with everything you did? To not just turn around and say, well, you know, when in Rome? No, I was literally
0: thinking that the entire time. I was like, how are we going to get that in?
1: I would say that oh, a hundred times a day if I was over there. I
2: think I did. I think I said that (laughs) so much. Uh, But what was better is that like I was there with a couple Americans and then I was there with people, you know, from all over the world and we would go to a restaurant and uh, classic Americans. We would get there and be like, can we add this to the meal and remove this? And can you add like a side of this? And like all the Europeans were just dying. They were like you americans think you know the food better like than the chef that's preparing it and i I feel like there were so many jokes and it all went back to like well when in rome like we'll order what we want (laughs) (laughs) it was was terrible
0: (laughs) that's awesome no that is super cool and and like i said just important that people are seeing what's going on because all these farmers like zach are just keeping to themselves and just don't want to share Yeah, That's right. Yes, we (laughs) keep secrets.
2: And I think that for the Rome thing, what was kind of crazy to me as well is the part that farmers play in the food security. Obviously, they're going to play a role. But like when a famine happens, you know, we in the developed nations want to like donate food, donate money, help them out. And one of the issues with that that was kind of crazy is that if you're given free food because it's in the famine, the farmers value of their product is worth zero because you could go mm-hmm. and get food for free. And so I thought it was really interesting about how instead of like donating food, they work with farmers to buy their product and then donate that food. So the farmers still have a market for their product and people are still getting food at an extremely low cost because if you just give food away for free and then the farmer isn't sustainable economically anymore, then you're going to continue the famine Hurts for even, even longer. And like just that whole, I mean, there was just so many complexities that I'd never thought of. Um, of how it all kind of comes into play and how the farmer's really at the heart of it.
0: Yeah, I know that's huge. I think I heard you talk about that one time and and um, that is a really good thing to think about, I think, too, that, you know, we want to help out people, but we need, to, we need to help them to be sustainable and sustain themselves on their own so they yep. can learn and be able to overcome these issues on their own as we go forward and we can worry about our own problems. Yeah. Gotta teach a man to fish. Teach a man to fish. Yeah.
2: Yeah, especially with farming. I mean, helping them out there, you know.
0: Huge. I saw, like, the same thing in my stuff down in, like, Southern Africa, too, where they, like, my understanding was in a lot of these areas, like, if you're not leaned over when you're working, then you're, like, not working hard enough. So, like, they wouldn't even get, like, full-scale, like, hoes and, like, shovels and stuff. It'd be, like, a shorter stature tool to make sure that your back was bent while you're working. Like that was a, like a symbol that like you were actually working hard. That's crazy. Wow. That your back was bent. That's
1: just a part of the culture there. Yeah, I guess. You don't like, want people to see you standing up straight.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, like when you're working in the fields. Yeah. Wow. The like you, that you had to be like hunched over or whatever the whole time.
1: That's, That's that crazy. Weird. Yeah. It's terrible.
0: But just like the whole point being like hey, we have technology here. We can feed a lot more people and I think those technologies are coming about And it's something that we have to think about too, I think, as American farmers, that these other places are going to continue to improve their production. They are going to feed themselves. It's not necessarily the U.S. farmer that's going to feed the world. Mm -hmm. It's what we produce has to be produced sustainably and has to be good quality. And we have to be able to tell our story that, hey, here's what we do, here's why we're producing these things, that this is real, this is safe. We haven't even got into alternative milk kind of stuff, and I know... (laughs) Tara, that'll get you all kinds of revved up too. I've seen some of your stuff, some of your uh, stance on that. But uh, but just to be able to tell that story and show, hey, we, we have to be more sustainable. We need to be a good example, I think, for other farmers around the world.
2: Absolutely. And I think we need to be good example consumers as well, all collectively. in. Not purchasing, like making sure that we purchase products that push us in the right direction, lead us in the right direction with technology. You know, if a a consumer won't buy something because of the technology used to produce it, you know, it not only affects the American farmer, but ultimately that's going to trickle to the whole world. And um, because I do think a lot of times we lead the way. And so making sure we're conscientious consumers as well and buying products that are, you know, going to move us all in the right direction.
1: Um, Looking to the future, Tyrod. What do you see coming down the pipeline for dairy farming as far as sustainability goes? What do you think some of the new practices are that you guys are going to look towards implementing on your farm as you go forward?
2: So something we've been kind of looking into over the last few months is um, I mentioned the digesters, the methane digesters earlier, which are old technology in a lot of places. But in New Mexico, it is just still not been a feasible uh, technology for us. And so we've been looking at some new research, um, some new innovations in that space. And so I'm really hopeful and excited that one day in the near future we will have a methane digester and be, you know, <clears throat> using our manure to power our farms, power our homes. Um and just be able to produce, you know, natural gas from that.
0: Because the main thing there is more so that you guys have so much more open areas yes. and the manure is not necessarily concentrated. And, like, that's the big that's the big holdup, I'm
2: assuming. Yes. And a lot of our manure is out in the open lots, which ends up being collected, you know, with – it can end up with dirt and things in it. And then you'd have to have sand separation. Uh, right. And a lot of our uh, solid manure gets hauled <laughs> off to local farmers. Uh, for them to use as fertilizer. And so it's just like a little bit, I feel like different. Um, and then I think, I don't know how far off this is for us. It's not something we're looking at, but I think the new technologies in the barn as far as robotic milking is extremely cool. I mean, Europe's been on, you know, the robotic milking for a lot longer than we have in the United States, but it's finally taking off in the United States. And I'm super excited and hopeful um for where that will go,
0: as you're looking at utilizing like robotic milking systems or other milking systems, how does that tie into like your view of sustainability? There, obviously, that's tying into economic sustainability, but you know, dig into that a little bit more and like, what's your current solution and labor needed um, to milk? 10,000 cows, what, twice a day at least?
2: Yeah, we milk twice a day. Um, Yes, we do have um, a a large labor um, force on our dairy. We have been fairly lucky, I think, uh, as far as having a lot of employees that have been with us a long time. We have some employees that have been with us, you know, 30 years or more, um, which is always really cool. And just, you know, it, it just makes things run smoother on your dairy. Um, but I do think robotic milking will help with labor shortages that people are seeing. Um, I think that people, you know, in the Midwest are already kind of seeing that the, those robotic milkers are helping with that. But from a sustainability side of things, you know, I think it could just make things more efficient. Um, and as you mentioned, economically, uh, you know, that those all play into the sustainability um you know, it takes all those things working together, I guess, to make something sustainable. Um, I think there could be, you know, opportunities for robotic milkers, you know, maybe in water conservation. Um using less water in the barn is always, you know, a good thing. Um, and so I don't. I think that there's, there's lots of opportunity there. And I also think sustainability doesn't always have to be big technology. You know, we've talked about some big technology. But, you know, when I go to my clients with ideas for water saving, it can't always be like a half a million dollar project or a hundred thousand dollar project. Sometimes it has to be just small changes that we make in the barn. And uh, some of those small changes can just include, you know, like a simple nozzle on your hose so that the hose isn't running all the time or timers on your hoses so they only run for a certain amount of time. It can help you reduce water use. It can make your barn run more efficiently. Um, you know, there's so many things, less water pumping out of the ground, which can save on your costs, uh, electrical costs. And so it. sustainability can be just small things that we implement on lots of farms that end up having a big impact. And I think that's what we've seen, you know, uh, over the last you know, 75 years is lots of small changes that have amounted to having a huge impact environmentally. Like I think in the last 75 years, we have reduced our carbon footprint um, of one gallon of milk by 66 percent. Uh, we're using 65 percent less water. Uh, you know, our cows are producing less manure per gallon of milk. Um, you know, tons of different things, and some of it can be from a barn management side, and some of it can be you know from a feed side. Improving the quality of our feeds can go along way with improving our uh, carbon footprint, Um, improving genetics on our cows. I mean, genetics on cows, I think we have done a lot. And I think there's still a lot of room for improvement. And those genetics play a huge role in what our carbon footprint looks like. And so even though it may not be like genetics, I would bet wouldn't be what most consumers would think about when thinking about sustainability or carbon footprint. But it's honestly one of the best ways that we can improve our farms and become more effective and more efficient while improving cow health.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. Like just getting all of that to work together and how it does have a real synergistic effect, I think is a really good way to kind of look at it. Um, And especially, like you said, in the dairy industry, there's already been made, been so much progress that's been made that uh, I think you guys are on a good track. One of the, the big pushes up here. In terms of sustainability with cover crops, mm-hmm. is that something that's really being pushed in your area?
2: It is. Um, I actually just went to a conference with my husband about like a regenerative agriculture conference, and it had been thought that a lot of times we didn't have enough water to really like get the cover crop, um, the water it needed to get started. Um, we, like I said, a lot of times double crop, so. We do have a crop usually on our land um, year-round, but there's still room for improving, like, the the time between harvest and planting and leaving more stubble um, in the ground from, you know, the cuttings. Um, and so I think we're definitely headed more in a regenerative agriculture direction. And one of the things that surprised me the most from that conference was really the amount of soil moisture that was still in the crops and the amount of water retention. Like when we'll have big, heavy rains, and a lot of times that'll create runoff. Um, But if you can improve your soil health, we can capture that water in the soils. And ultimately, that water then can be used to grow a cover crop or a second crop. And it doesn't necessarily require more water pumped out of the ground. It's utilizing the water Better utilizing the water that's you know falling out of the sky when that occasionally happens in eastern New Mexico. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've hit on some pretty good topics here, Tara. You've been a great voice for the egg industry. Is there anything else that you wish more people understood about dairy farming?
2: Oh my goodness, <laughs> I wish that people understood a lot of things. Um, probably too many to count, but I think that I. You know, being on social media, I think more people would reach out to farmers, um, find farmers in their area, talk with them. You know, if they have a question, just ask. Um, I wish farmers were sometimes a little bit more understanding that there is no stupid questions. People do just want to learn and they don't even know necessarily what questions to ask. And so I wish there was just a better communication there between farmers and consumers in helping Consumers better understand where their food's coming from, Uh, especially with dairy farming. You know, a gallon of milk uh, is like one ingredient, milk, and it typically travels less than 100 miles from farm to the table, like the gallon of milk. And so with consumers wanting like whole foods, local foods, it's like go buy a gallon of milk at your local grocery store. It's about as local as it gets. It leaves my farm and is on your table in less than 48 hours typically, like super fresh, uh, every single, you know, I wish that consumers understood kind of the process of milk itself. That every tanker of milk is tested to the parts per billion for different things, including antibiotics. And if something were to come back not to standard, uh, the farmer has to dump the milk and has to pay for the milk. And so, you know, there's just so many checks and balances ensuring like a safe food supply with milk. And I think just that entire process of how it goes from our farm to people's table, I wish that people understood better. I know that's kind of broad, but I think that's what we're all hoping for when we're sharing our story online is is people better understanding that process from beginning to end.
0: And as you're sharing your story, obviously you're really ramping that up and really doing that. What is your kind of goal? Or do you do you have a more specific goal on like sharing the story from your standpoint?
2: Yeah, I think that I... I I don't know that I had a goal when I started out, but now I feel like just extremely passionate about—I've always been passionate about dairy farming, but now more so than ever about helping people understand dairy farming, modern farming, large-scale farming, and then the sustainability side of things. And I think it's pretty—I think it's my goal to, you know, do this full-time from now until, you know, whenever I can, Um, of just sharing with more people, reaching more people in unique ways. And I feel— Like until recently, I've been fairly local to New Mexico, but I would love to do this on like a larger scale like things with the UN and feeling like I have a bigger impact um, globally or nationally um, and using my voice for that of being able to share like – being a voice for all farmers uh, since we are such a small number and we don't always get off the farm is just having the largest impact I can on as many people.
0: No, it's awesome. And we definitely wish you luck. And hopefully, you know, we can continue this conversation with you, you know, going forward as well. We definitely want to keep helping you out as much as we can. And and uh, that's the whole point of the Fieldwork Podcast, you know, is to have these conversations, be able to scale and show farmers hey, there's a lot of people out here that want to work with you, that want to have this conversation, that are doing the right things. And we all need to continue to improve and tell that story so we can really keep making progress.
2: Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me on. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Thank you very much, Tara, for joining us.
0: Well, if you're interested in learning more about sustainable ag on a dairy farm, don't forget to check out our YouTube video of my visit to Bomas farms at Wisconsin dairy to see what they're up to. And uh, you can check that out at fieldwork talk on YouTube.
1: All right it's that time now on the podcast here where we take your comments and questions
0: hello this is lynn farmeyer i farm 1700
1: acres of corn soybeans and wheat in west central missouri and i have a flock of 150 katahdin hair sheep Uh, i started using cover crops probably 25 30 years ago I had some
2: trouble uh quit i kind of wish i would have pushed through the troubles i would have been a lot further ahead than i am now but um anyway it was kind of exciting this fall we had a horrible time trying to sow cover crops with the late wet fall but uh, this past weekend i was looking at my wheat cover crops and um realized that at 63 degrees um you know on a second day of February, uh, I was still pushing carbon into the soil. So that's kind of a neat thing.
0: No, that's awesome. Lynn, you know, that I really think there is a lot of opportunities to be able to get some cover crop in and, and you're even further South than, than Zach's farm and my farm, you know, that, that situation is just different for every person. You know, that window of opportunity is really different for each farm, but especially in your situation too, with, with the sheep, that's a great opportunity to get, not only some extra feed value out of that cover crop, protect that soil, um, but also even just a a place to keep those sheep out of the mud even too, and keep those sheep on some, some grass. So I think that's really awesome. And uh, yeah, the pumping carbon piece of this, I think is going to be really interesting. It's something that we're going to talk a lot more about here in season two of the podcast that pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it down into the soil is something that, A cover crop can really help us out to do. And uh, utilize the sugar there to keep feeding those microbes in your soil.
1: The main thing I heard there was 63 degrees in the beginning of February. That's where I want to fly to for vacation. There you go. Yeah. That's it for field work today. Thanks to all the people who helped make field work possible. Annie Baxter, Amy Scotchless cole Claire Jones, Noah Boston, Kristen Schmidt, Eric Romani, and Lauren Humpert.
0: Our theme song is written and performed by Johnny Vince Evans with help from Corey Streppel.
1: And our website is fieldworktalk.org. We're on Fieldwork Talk on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Everywhere. Everywhere. If you like the
0: show, um, hit us up, uh, make a review, and we'd love to get a voicemail from you. Our voicemail lines are open. Leave us a comment or a question at 651-228-4810. That's 651 228
1: Make sure you call in and nominate uh, Mitchell over here for being the second best podcast host on planet Earth.